Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get started, a quick Patreon shout out. Thank you to new members, Monica and Andrew, like a different Andrew. A whole nother Andrew. Last time. Amazing. I know. Uh, we hope you enjoy all those bonus episodes and the other cool stuff. And we really, really, really appreciate your support of really? the show. And listeners, if you want to support us with a few dollars a month, you can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. We keep inching closer to our hundred patron secret surprise gift that will go out to all patrons once we hit the big hundo. So if you'd like to support us in a non-monetary fashion, you can also do that. You can leave reviews and stars on any podcast platform, or you can do none of those things and just listen to the show. It's all cool with us. We love it. Yeah. This week, we continue our celebration of back to school in the abstract. Not necessarily this year's back to school, which we recognize is a very scary thing for many of our listeners, with a trip to the good old library. Yeah. And also, heads up, listeners, I've spent the last day just like fully sea cucumbering. And so I'm a little I don't subdued. know if people necessarily know the anatomical quirks <laughs> of the sea cucumber. I know what you mean. <laughs> But Amber had food poisoning. There was, yeah, yeah. her guts hurt. Oh, <laughs> so, so yeah. So don't be nice to me. I'm always nice so, to you. We're, no, I'm just, I'm talking to the, the listener. Please be, be nice be to nice. my friend. Um, yeah, thanks. So, so the good old library. The good old library. The operative word here being old. We're talking about ancient libraries. So this will be a... Uh, this will be a bit of an overarching history of how libraries came to be and what kinds of things they can contain, but it'll mostly be a library roundup. So make sure you got your library card and you paid your outstanding loan fees, or if you're like me, successfully sweet-talked your way out of them <laughs> because they were like $900. Uh, and let's head to those stacks. So unless we're really going to get philosophical about it, Maybe a bit of foreshadowing here. We can't really have a library unless we're writing things down. So let's head first to where things were written down first. And forgive me as I sidestep the history of writing systems for today. We do not have the time. <laughs> we don't have the time. Uh, that's something we should definitely do a whole episode on someday. Because yeah, for it's sure. It's really fascinating and complex and, you know, surprising. Mm-hmm. But. The earliest evidence for writing is widely accepted to come from Mesopotamia in the 4th millennium BCE. During this time, city-states were developing in the region and, with that, developed trade among themselves and with other regions. So writing emerged as a practicality, a way for someone to keep track of how many sheep he was sending, like a packing slip. Invoice. Yeah. 
Um, so it might be tempting to think that writing was first developed because we needed to express ourselves and make our thoughts permanent, but really it was just to make sure you didn't get ripped off on your beer delivery. So, which yeah, a lot of the earliest writing we have is specifically about beer yeah. deliveries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So proto-writing developed in complexity over time, and around 3200 BCE, we start to see the Sumerian language robustly represented in writing. So Sumerian was a spoken language that happened to be the first one written down. Yes. Uh, And so Sumerian and cuneiform aren't the same thing. Cuneiform is the writing system, just to make that clear. Used to express the spoken language of Sumerian. And then other languages. And so around 2250 BCE, we meet the first author, uh, whom Justin Trudeau might call an author. Is he in the habit of feminizing words he, like that? Does he do that? No, he loves doing like the, he had a he had a speech recently that was like really cringy, okay. like where I was like, I guess I can't make that joke anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. So the first author yeah. was Enheduanna. <laughs> I'll a, make this a, one instead. <laughs> was Enheduanna, a priestess of Inanna. Uh, Inanna is the Sumerian name for the Semitic goddess Ishtar. Mm. So they're kind of the same person, the sort of goddess of, of love and kind of battle. It's complicated. Um, and so Inheduanna lived in Ur, wrote poetry, and made a name for herself outside her position as the daughter of Sargon the Great. Oh, heard of him. Was, yeah, he's the guy who kind of invented empires. Wow. And so she... So... <laughs> Yeah, so she, but she had her own thing going. Um, she wrote two hymns to Inanna. Um, she wrote the myth of Inanna and Ebe. And she also wrote a collection of 42 temple hymns. So pretty prolific. Mm, certainly more than I've done. And a, and a lady. Wow. <laughs> a woman. <laughs> Unthinkable. So. A uh, hundred years after Enheduanna's poetry, a new dynasty was in town in southern Mesopotamia, the third dynasty of Ur, which we've talked about a little bit. Yep. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a little bit. A little bit. So this this period, which ran from about 2112 to 2004 BCE, was characterized by previously unseen levels of bureaucracy. <laughs> so... <laughs> So Sargon may have started conquering people in a big way, but the Or Three period mastered state administration, Ugh. which arguably is an important part of having. I mean, I know, know it is, but uh, uh, yeah, right. So a king named Shulgi reorganized everything, started expanding and established a new tax system. The result of big changes, big moves and big taxes was the production of a staggering amount of written material excavated from the third millennium equivalent of the copy paper box at the back of your closet. Yep. Okay, I so, see you've seen my closet. <laughs> It's estimated that there are at least 120,000 administrative cuneiform tablets above ground today. Yeah. So according to a 2016 article by Manuel Molina, um, which I'll have included in the show notes, uh, there are some 96,000 of those that are cataloged in BDTNS, uh, which is French for Database of Neo-Sumerian Texts. 
And so 64,500 of those have been published in hand copy, photo, transliteration, and or translation. So they've actually been studied. Mm-hmm. Um, 16,500 have been published only through their cataloging data. Just We just know it exists. And, um, and then there are 15,000 that remain unpublished, um, including images of tablets that are just labeled unpublished, unassigned in CDLI. And CDLI is the Cuneiform Digital Library Initiative. Um, I mean, they so have a, a lot, lot of, to work through, so you can, you can hardly fault them. Yeah. And, and, and admittedly, a lot of them are a name, a number, an object. A name, a number, an object. And it's like, 14 okay, sheep. cool. Like, it's, it's really like a lot of these is just sort of like, um, I'm looking at my desk now and every so often I just kind of dump out my purse. And so <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like the receipts and the little notes that you put on the back receipts and like Shopping ATM yep. slips. And it's just like a lot of stuff that is, that speaks to like the economy of, of my house, my personal household, but it's also like, okay, I mean, great. Did I need to know that I pulled out 60 bucks from the ATM? Like, what does that do for me? So even with the many, 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 many unpublished and unstudied texts, the, or, and also the stuff that we don't have above ground or that has just thinking about like the hobby lobbies of the world that are just like buying sort of like lots no. of 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 tablets. So even with all the things that we don't know about yet, the or three corpus teaches us so much about the political and economic administration at the end of the third millennium BCE, which in turn can tell us so much about the lives of the people performing that work and exchanging the goods and services described in those tablets. And that's something that I've always been interested in. Mm -hmm. And like one of the things that if I were any good at Akkadian and cuneiform more broadly, I probably would have loved to look into. Um, it's kind of like you just because, you get to snoop through somebody's purse. Well, and but you also, if you are interested in sort of workers and labor mm-hmm. and like the the lived experience of people performing labor, you do get a sense of it. And there's a really um, there's a really amazing article that is sort of like a classic at this point. And um, I I think it's called like hard work. Where will it get you? (laughs) Um, And I'll, I'll dig it up and I'll include it in the show notes because it's something that um, it's a, it's basically a ledger from somebody from a for a foreman uh, recording, like a, a group of, of women laborers. And, just sort of like recording their hours and kind of what they owe. Oh, it's time sheets. Cor- cor- well, it's like corvée labor. So oh, okay. they're sort of, so they're kind of working off a debt uh-huh. as it were. And you see that at the, like over time, you start to see that they owe more than they ever could possibly work. Basically because of the way that, servants. But because of the way, because it's the way that like, a day is calculated and the way that like a unit of labor is calculated is something that does not reflect on like, human ability. Oh, interesting. And so it's, it's a, it's looking at like exploitation of labor. Yeah. That's very much your bag. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff that you can, you can get a sense of. And it's really interesting because there's a lot more than just, you know, you're reading both what they record and what they want to 
work show. But you also are look, if you kind of look beyond that and say like, well, what does this actually mean? You get a sense of what life was like because you're looking at sort of these very like quotidian, like bureaucratic nonsense can give you a <laughs> mm-hmm. sense of what was actually happening. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's sort of how it all started. Yeah. Now, administrative paperwork, it's good for something. And so just like the Mesopotamian archives, the next library on our journey wasn't originally a library in the sense of a deliberately organized collection of texts, but it has become exactly that. In 1933, archaeologists from the organization formerly known as the Oriental Institute, but now that they're cool, they're just, oi, (laughs) were conducting excavations at the Achaemenid Persian city of Persepolis, which had been the ceremonial capital of the Persian Empire. On the edge of a massive stone terrace, jumbled inside two small rooms within the fortification wall of the city, excavators found tens of thousands of clay tablets, both whole and fragmentary. And so these had just been, it's like someone took out that box of of copier paper from the back of their closet and just like dumped it in somewhere where they needed filler. It was like wall fill. And so there are four main types of tablet from this deposit. Type one. Pieces with text in cuneiform script in the Elamite language. This is an extinct language that doesn't appear to be related to any existing language group. So it's a it's a little it's a little clade of its own. It was spoken in the Elamite kingdom, which is in present day southwestern Iran, and disappeared soon after Alexander the Great barged into the area. So my understanding of of Elamite, which is extremely slim, is that the language has been mostly translated thanks to a Rosetta Stone-like three-language tablet known as the Behistun inscription. Well, it's not a tablet. It's a side of a, it's a side of a mountain. Oh, because I, I yeah. when I looked it up, there were, I, there was like a, mis, there was a misleading image of what looked like just like a very similar. Let me, let me double check. And if I'm wrong, please cut this out. Okay. Yeah. The Behistun, it's, it's just like seriously on the side of a mountain. Oh. The, in fact, the mountain is Mount Behistun. Oh, okay. Great. Which it's like way up there. And so the like it's yeah, so Behistun is um a world heritage site. And so like it's kinda way up on a mountain. It's really incre- it's impressive. And then oh is it Sir Henry Rawlinson? Was he the one that scrambled up there and was like, Oh mm-hmm. um or maybe somebody had copied it. So it's sort of um I don't know that he ever scrambled up there and looked at it. Okay. But yeah, it's the um it is the it's sort of at like a mountain pass in the Zagros and you just kind of would walk under it and look up there and be like, wow, wow. So it's a billboard basically. Darius. Yeah. 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 That's a really great way to describe it. It's like it's a, a highway billboard. Um, and if you've ever been in a, a place that has sort of kind of an authoritarian regime where there would be sort of like big ups to our ruler, mm-hmm. um, there are billboards that look like that. I'd be like, you know, yeah. Thanks for ruling us so well. It's it's one of those. Okay. Uh, but the important thing about the Behistun inscription is that it's in three languages, one of which is Elamite. And so it, it's been translated, but we're not sure what the spoken version of the language sounded like. The Persepolis deposit contained the remains of around fifteen to 18,000 original documents. Again, some of these are actual whole documents. Some of them are just fragments. Type number two of tablet are pieces with text in Aramaic script and language, comprising around 500 to 1,000 original documents. Not much Aramaic. Type number three is pieces with no text, but with seal impressions. 
And there are <laughs> a, there are about 5,000 to 6,000 of these just... Yeah. And so um, I'm just totally talking off the dome here, but something with no text but could have seal impressions, that could speak to it being like the envelope of things mm-hmm. um, because you would sort of have um, you'd have your tablets that have been fired and then you kind of just kind of wrap it up in some some soft clay and then you can roll your um, your seal on the outside to be like this oh. has been untampered with. Because remember, like thinking back to, you know, thousands of years before this millennia before this, when you are sending, like you send your, you send your guy out with, with 14 sheep. If like he doesn't do a good job of delivering them and only 12 sheep arrive, you don't, you want to make sure that, um, that the person receiving receiving it, like, but like, well, I asked for 14 sheep, you sent me 12 and you could crack it open. It's like, oh, you did send me 14. And so that way, it's, you, it's know, this you know, you're, yeah. you know, the guy, the person conveying your sheep wasn't just like, I'm just going to rub this out and change. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, just going to clear off to the little, the little marks on the, mm-hmm. the number and um, just be like, yep, yes, no yeah. problem here. Yeah, so it's a good sure way to no fraud. cut down on fraud. Yeah. So it could be something like this because, um, you know, it's not fired until spoilers for a later, a later library. It's not fired until it catches on fire. Yep. So it's something that you could have easily just kind of cracked open and would have crumbled. Yep. Mm. So that could be why there's so many of those. Just because yeah, it's warding off envelopes. sheep crimes. Um, type number four is my favorite category in any list, and that is oddities. And these include a tablet with Greek inscriptions, a Phrygian tablet, some bits of clay inscribed with coin imprints instead of seals, and other bits and pieces that just don't fit nicely into any of the other categories. So we'll have a link in, in the show notes uh, to a page from Oi that has a digital archive of images of these tablets, an archive archive. So meta. Mm. Uh, and if you'd like to see them for yourself, there are photos. So you can you can go see them. So the Persepolis tablets are a unique resource for scholarship. Until they were found, the main written sources for the Persian Empire were those written by foreigners to the Persian Empire, notably the Hebrew Bible and Greek sources such as Herodotus and historians of Alexander's campaigns. So as you might expect, given who was doing the writing, these accounts only give a partial and biased picture of the Persian Empire. So with the discovery of the Persepolis fortification tablets, researchers were finally able to get an understanding of the everyday life and internal workings of the Achaemenid imperial organization, as described by the Persians themselves. The tablets, as we mentioned above, also bear thousands of seal impressions. Since the archive is securely dated within a very narrow time range from 509 to 494 BCE during the reign of Darius I, this allows art historians to precisely date the use of specific art styles. That comes in handy. So to get a sense of why the Persepolis tablets are so important, you have to know that the Achaemenids loved administration. They loved lists, they loved documents, they loved leaving a paper trail, a clay trail in this case. The tablets give some sense of daily life in the Achaemenid Empire in the way that someone could get a sense of your daily life if they found a trove of your grocery lists, tax documents, and receipts. Much of the Persepolis material deals with the movement and expenditure of food commodities in the region in the 15 years between 509 and 494 BCE. Firstly, they make it absolutely clear that everyone in the state sphere of the Persian economy was on a fixed ration scale, 
or a fixed salary expressed in terms of commodities. So in, in exchange for your labor or your service, you get stuff, usually food. The payment of rations is very highly organized. Travelers along the road carried sealed documents issued by the king or officials stating the scale on which they were entitled to be fed. Tablets sealed by supplier and recipient went back to Persepolis as a record of that transaction. So I have the right to be fed this many loaves of bread. Here is the confirmation that so-and-so received that many loaves of bread. Yeah. Yeah. Be like, I fed him that many loaves of bread. Yeah. Look, kind of. Yep. So because of this find, Persepolis is now the best documented area in the Achaemenid Empire. Yeah. So you've got like purchase orders and vouchers mm-hmm. and invoices. Pretty much, like it's yeah. All, it's, all, it's all highly bureaucratic. Uh. <laughs> um, so stepping back in time just a little bit and returning to Mesopotamia, we encounter our first true library at the end of the 7th century BCE. Before it all came crashing down, the Neo-Assyrian Empire hit some pretty lofty heights, but we're not going to spend the next hour plumbing in the depths of my thoughts about Ashurbanipal, king of the world, king of Assyria. We're just going to talk about his library. So, according to the British Museum, who has it now, the library of Ashurbanipal contained roughly 30,000 tablets. That's not to say there were 30,000 individual titles, but there are thousands and thousands of texts included in that. So, you know, like we talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, there are several tablets that constitute the Epic of Gilgamesh, some of which are lost completely, others of which we only have uh, fragments in different locations to put it together. So I'm not saying there's 30,000 books there. Yeah. But among those thousands of texts, many of them deal with omens and divination, the sort of stuff we discussed in our astronomy episode. Because if you're a king, you know, the seventh, sixth century, understanding the will of the gods and avoiding their wrath was a top priority. If you're a guy trying to keep a stretched military apparatus churning. Yeah. You got to make decisions. Um, Check with the gods first. Yeah, um, especially, yeah, you know, you got your very, like, stressed and uh, over overstretched military apparatus, because you are king of the world, king of Assyria. World's big. Um, also, there's a lot of internal issues <laughs> of the assassinating kind. So I'll include the, in the show notes a link to a blog post from the British Museum that's very British Museum-y about the whole thing. <laughs> Um, but it does include a lot of information about the history of the collection. So the 30,000 tablets of the Library of Ashurbanipal, um, and an image of the fun little cuneiform bookplate of sorts that was used to indicate that the text was part of his collection. So it says like, this tablet belongs to Ashurbanipal, king of the world, king of Assyria. And it's like at the bottom. Um, it's fun. fun. I like that. So because um, it would, it's not just a matter. He's not necessarily just going out there and like collecting books. Like he doesn't have like a, a purchasing department. He, there would be sort oh, we'll of a there. scribal team. There would be a scribal team that would copy things. So he would sort of commission a copy, um, in in some cases, and then those at the at the sort of as it's being copied at the end, you you just put like a little little book plate in it. Um, so as for a collection of clay tablets that was so well preserved to this day, no spoilies, but 
the Neo-Assyrian Empire didn't work out so well, um, specifically for Ashurbanipal. <laughs> so um, Ashurbanipal's rule ended around the same time that Nineveh was burned in huh. 612 BC. What a coincidence. Um, <laughs> and rather than letting everything go up in a puff of smoke, the fire only made the tablets harder. A lesson for us all. Indeed. So even after the library was lost, it was legendary in scribal circles for centuries to come. Some suggest, some contemporary scholars, suggest that its legacy was what inspired our next entry, which, uh, moment of radical honesty here for me, I spent a lot of my life not actually sure if this next one existed or if it was like a Tower of Babel type thing. That's fair. Um, and I was never like so interested as to... <laughs> Like, look into it. Um, so I look forward to learning. Oh, come along with me on this journey. Because <laughs> listeners, you didn't think we'd leave out the Library of Alexandria, did you? So uh, trigger warning for all classicists and ancient historians still hurting from this tragedy. <laughs> not me. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> Much of this is pulled from a great article on Lit Hub by James Crawford. So here's the story. In 331 BCE, according to the Greek historian Plutarch, after successfully conquering Egypt, Alexander the Great received a vision in his sleep. A, quote, gray-haired man of venerable appearance, old, end quote, told him of an island in the much-dashing sea in front of Egypt. Pharos is what men call it. So Alexander believed that this visitation was the Greek poet Homer communicating from beyond the grave. Oh, man. Let's just leave that there. <laughs> but the upshot is that oh, he traveled boy. to Pharos. He declared it to be the perfect spot for a city, a city that would bear his name and that would become a new capital of the ancient world. With his architect, Dinocrates, Dinocrates, the young emperor paced out the plan of Alexandria, scattering barley meal in the sand to mark the locations of palaces, streets, and buildings, which seems... Like, not the most efficient way to do that. Like, sure, but birds? Like, just, just, what if hungry birds ate part of, like, a city building? I mean, it's just bigger than that. Anna, this is reminding me. There is on, uh, you know how I believe that TikTok is only full of, like, kooky people with, like, harmful ideologies? You're not totally um, wrong. There's good, <laughs> there's good stuff on TikTok, but you have to there look for it. There is a person. There is a person who um, claims to be an ancient historian. Uh, and um, <laughs> I don't, I already she, don't like it. <laughs> she also is like trying to like, I don't know, speak the truth about how Alexander was a lady. Um, and, and like that history mm -hmm. is uh, like the classics are, you know, I guess misogynist or something mm -hmm. and the making, mm -hmm. making her a, mm -hmm. a man. And the evidence for this is that all the cities that were established in Alexander's honor are named Alexandria, which like the clues right there. Alexandria is a lady name. Isn't, Ergo, isn't the noun for like Alexander, <laughs> Alexander, lady, QED. Isn't the, the noun for my case. like concept Don't of Don't disagree with me or I will block you. Okay. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. So there. So Alexandria, regardless of the. No, but that is, that is, yeah, that is um, 
when you form words, when you form nouns in Greek, when you name a place after a person, that is how you do that. Yeah. Yep. That's mm-hmm. that's how it's done. All right. Well, we're um, blocked. Cool. <laughs> so Alexandria was a huge and impressive city as befit Alexander's ego and vision. But what made it truly unique was its role as a center for learning and scholarship. Because Alexander was a, a, a student of Aristotle, right? Um, I think it was Anthony Hopkins in in the film. Yep. See why I thought the Library of Alexandria was fake? <laughs> I mean, I only learned about things up until the arrival of Alexander. Okay, great. And all came tumbling <laughs> down. Alexandria was built around a simple yet staggeringly ambitious idea, that of holding in one place all of the knowledge ever accumulated by man. A great library was established there to become the memory bank of the ancient world, filled with papyrus and parchment scrolls containing everything from poetry, drama, and literature to advanced treatises on mathematics, anatomy, geography, physics, and astronomy. One of the earliest surviving accounts to make specific mention of Alexandria's library comes in the middle of the 2nd or 3rd century BCE. The actual dating is a matter of much debate. No one is surprised. Written by Aristeus, a Jewish scholar who had come to live and work in the city. In a letter to his brother Philocrates, Phil, he writes, Demetrius the guy in charge of book collecting, was assigned large sums of money with a view to collecting, if possible, all of the books in the world. And by arranging purchases and transcriptions, he carried the king's design to completion as far as he was able. When he was asked, in my presence, about how many thousands of books were already collected, he replied, Above 200,000, my king, and in a short while I shall exert every effort for the remainder to round out the number to half a million. End quote. Dang. Yeah. Since the goal was to gather and catalog every book ever written, the collection strategy was pretty intense. Uh, And it carried on after Alexander. The Ptolemy dynasty that that came afterwards instituted a law that any book brought into the city had to be passed immediately to the library's scribes for copying. More often than not, the original was kept and the copy (laughs) returned to its owner. Rude. So don't bring a first edition of anything. The thousands of ships docking in the city's three interconnected deepwater harbors were searched routinely, and any text not already declared and unloaded onto the quaysides were seized and confiscated. So, like, people would storm onto the ships going, you got books? Huh? Give me the books. So many books were added to the library through this method that they received their own categorization, a label attached to each parchment that read, from the ships. So this is real? Like this stuff actually happened? Well, it's it's documented like, as happening. Um, yeah. Okay. Because, <laughs> okay. I mean, we know how this ends. Agents were employed yeah. to travel to book markets across the Mediterranean in search of rare and original works. What a cool job. You want that job? Just go to bookstores for your job. In the 3rd century BCE, Ptolemy III sent emissaries to all the kings and leaders in the known world, asking to borrow their books for copying. And... Here as well, um, often when these rulers sent him the books, he would send back the copies. Just keep the originals. (laughs) But all these books, as far as we know, are now long gone. At some point in ancient history, we know that the library and its priceless contents were destroyed, most likely burned to ashes. A vast tract of the collective memory and accomplishments of classical human civilization and culture was wiped out. 
What we do not know, at least for certain, is who was responsible. And so we don't have time to, this, this is an episode all of its own, but this the piece on LitHub goes on in a lot more detail. We wanted to focus on the formation of the library and its contexts, not on its destruction. So with that, we'll move on. Okay, so we've not, like, we've not found the Library of Alexandria. Like, we've not found, like, a building that was destroyed well, with, like, a, you know, like a cornerstone that's, like, this was erected to collect Well, okay, apart, apart from that last part, um, there are places that have been thought to be the remains of the burned library, but... It, nothing's been confirmed as far as I could find. Okay. Yeah. I, wow. I don't feel any more convinced that it existed. Right. Because it's, I mean, it sounds like a propaganda thing. Like it sounds like, like it, it just seems. It kind of does, but, it it's, got- but it's so consistent throughout records of different, like there's historical records that mention it that are not necessarily connected in any way, like different polities. Hmm. Um, mention mm-hmm. it. And so if it's all propaganda to glorify Alexander and the dynasties that came after him or her, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know. It just seems like it's, there's too much about it for it to be interesting. Not a thing, but again, interesting. I am by no means even approaching expert. So let's move all on. Right. Uh, but before that, let's take a quick ad break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, we're back. Me again. Hi. Hello. Hello. We've been spending a lot of time in the Mediterranean and environs, so let's go somewhere else now. China. The first evidence we have of deliberately archived media of any sort in China is from the Shang Dynasty, which was around 1600 to 1050 BCE. This is kind of a library inception situation. And another example of, oops, all colonialism. The items are referring to here currently reside in the British Library as of around 1911 CE. And these are the Shang Dynasty Oracle Bones. Whee. The oracle bones in the British Library come from the Cooling Chalfont Collection, which was made in China between 1903 and 1908 by two missionaries, Samuel Cooling, a Brit, and Frank Chalfont, an American, who were working doing missionary stuff in Shandong province. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So oracle bones were used for divination over 3,000 years ago in ancient China, and they are among the oldest items held in the British Library. 
These are most often scapulae or shoulder bones of animals like goats or pigs, but tortoise shells were also used. Questions about crops, the weather, battles, and the ruling family were engraved on the bone, and heat was then applied with metal sticks. The heat caused the bones to crack, and the diviners interpreted the patterns of the fractures to determine the answer to the question posed. And I think this was kind of the the precursor to the Yi Jing, the sort of book of mm, mm-hmm. um, similarly used for, for prediction and sort of divination. The oracle bones in this collection are carved with Shang Dynasty script, the oldest known form of Chinese writing, and the ancestor of the Chinese characters still used today, which were um, kind of standardized later during the Qin Dynasty. The script is angular, and the shape of the characters is simplified as much as possible to make it easier to engrave on hard surfaces, like runes, like the the Norse Mm -hmm. with arc runes. After the Shang Dynasty comes the Zhou Dynasty, and the first real, like, non-oracular Chinese written literature. The great literary works of philosophy and religion that became the basis for Chinese religious and social belief stem from what is called the Spring and Autumn Period, uh, which was 770 to 476 BCE, and the Warring States Period, 475 to 221 BCE, that immediately preceded the Qin Dynasty. Taoism, Confucian literature, and other prominent religious and philosophical schools all emerged during these two periods. Historically, the Chinese call this kind of emergence of religions and philosophies the 100 schools of thought. Uh, And like there were these little kingdoms that hadn't yet been unified. And this is really the reason why so many philosophers could write simultaneously about so many kind of opposing schools of thought, because there were these uh, small kingdoms. Because in Chinese history, the dominant rulers, let's just say, robustly discouraged philosophical expression that contradicted their own. And so when there were several smaller polities, as in the Warring States period, different schools of thought were able to coexist. All right. And then each each um, polity would be able to sort of subsidize the living expenses of, of the people coming up with those philosophies. You don't, you know, you don't have like you know, like court thinkers or like court philosophers. Like I think, would yeah, be able to, I think so. Like they would be able to like patronize mm-hmm. folks. In the same way okay. that there, there would be like court poets and court. Yeah. Yeah. Same idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then more courts, more poets, <laughs> more problems, because when China was then consolidated under the, the first Qin emperor, uh, there were a lot of dead philosophers and oh. burned works of literature. So the major literary achievements of the Confucian classics, early Taoist writings, and other important prose works originated in the, again, the late spring and autumn period. So sort of the middle uh, of this, of the uh, Zhou dynasty and the warring states period. These literary works deeply shaped Chinese philosophy and religion. What we know about the literature of this period was mainly preserved after the Qin Dynasty's book burning and from a few recent archaeological finds of records. So we know there were copies made or references made to these earlier works, but a lot of them don't exist. They're not extant anymore, apart from where they're excerpted in in later works, because the Qin Emperor um, really sort of thoroughly eradicated any sort of um, philosophical work or or writing that w- went against his sort of personal views. So probably most of the philosophical and religious works of that time were destroyed. If there were great fictional books created, they've been lost. So they, we don't know 
if there was earlier mm-hmm. fiction than the, the earliest existing Chinese fiction that we know of. So the main contributions of this period to Chinese literature were the prose works of the Confucian classics and those Taoist writings and preserved poems and songs. And so we'll have links in the show notes to more detailed catalogs of these works if you'd like to see see them kind of listed oh. and, and go look further into that. Awesome. Um, and then next up, just a brief interlude that while I, gosh, what feels like years ago when I, you know, at the beginning of the week, when I started um, this script, there are so many libraries and so many different sort of library and literary traditions that we aren't getting to in this episode. And so I just want to sort of um, tease a as yet unscheduled future episode in which we will look at more of those. And that will include um, the library at Timbuktu and also uh, the like sort of just the phenomenon of Islamic libraries mm-hmm. itself, um, because that is uh, so in both Islamic tradition and, and in Judaism, there is a very strong um, tradition of education of of sort of like, like literature and study and like exegesis for knowledge yeah yeah and so um i just want to say we know <laughs> about these um and we'll be talking about those in more detail in a future episode but yeah while we're in what well, Since I mentioned Timbuktu, Mm -hmm. which is in the continent of Africa, let us remain in the continent of Africa with something that Anna is going to teach me about. (laughs) Yeah. So this is something that I thought of when Amber sort of floated the idea for this script. It's a little bit outside the box, as in outside of the library and inside of a person's head, because I wanted to consider the human libraries, kind of in quotes, that are responsible for the oral traditions of various cultures. And so one of the examples of this is the West African griot. Traditionally, griot was a social caste and it was an important position. The role of storyteller and history keeper was passed down through families. Griots were responsible for keeping all the births, deaths, and marriages throughout the generations of their family or village. They tell their stories to music using four principal instruments. There are others, but these are sort of the big four. Um, The kora, a 21-stringed lute that sounds like a harp. The balafon, the ngoni, and the voice. Depending on preference... What What are those? The balafon is a gourd resonated xylophone. So it's, oh. yeah, it's got, so the part that you actually strike with the mallets is made of wood, but then underneath there are gourds that serve as, as resonating chambers. Um, and then the ngoni is, is also a lute like instrument. Um, the body is okay. often a gourd and then um, it's got okay. strings. And, yeah. So you, so you got like a, like a string, a percussion, a, another string, another string and, and the, the voice. voice. Yep. Which is, in its own way, a stringed instrument. Mm -hmm. So depending on preference and tradition, each griot family might stick to one physical instrument. Um, There might be, you know, they might change it up, but typically there's, they specialize in one instrument, which they then learn to make as well as to play. And they pass that through their family for generations. The training for younger members born into a griot family is extremely thorough. A griot in training spends years listening to and memorizing the oral histories of the family or or families, if it's sort of a larger village or collective. 
They start learning to craft their instruments as young as eight years old. And then when they're around 18 and have mastered the skills required to perform the repertoire of hundreds of songs and stories that make up their heritage, the young griot is given his or her own instrument. So an author uh, named Francis Bebe wrote about the griot in a book called African Music, A People's Art. Um, in the latest edition was published in 1975, apparently. And Bebe wrote, quote, the West African griot is a troubadour, the counterpart of the medieval European minstrel. The griot knows everything that is going on. He is a living archive of the people's traditions. The virtuoso talents of the griots command universal admiration. This virtuosity is the culmination of long years of study and hard work under the tuition of a teacher who is often a father or uncle. The profession is by no means a male prerogative. There are many women griots whose talents as singers and musicians are equally remarkable. End quote. So there are, it's kind of a, a cool, like egalitarian life calling. It's neat. Um, there are modern day griots, though the role now is, to my understanding, more about performing and sharing music and culture and traditions and less focused on history keeping of individual families, although that's definitely part of it, but it's, it's sort of expanded more. So that's, I just, it's very brief. I just wanted to kind of encompass oral traditions as well, because just because there's no physically written down, um, version of these histories, there is still a collection of them. There's still a library yeah. of these stories and histories, but it just yeah, exists. like a repository of recorded knowledge. Yeah, and it exists. And it doesn't have to be recorded. Mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's I wanted to make sure that we kind of took in that definition of library as well. So let's take one more quick break and then head to another part of the world. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Yeah. So, hello, we're back. Hi. Um, and this time we're headed to the world of the Maya, who still exist. Yep. But as far as sort of the classic period of Maya, they really hit their stride around 600 to 800 CE. So, um, Maya had a written language that included pictograms, glyphs, and phonetic representations, like a lot like Egyptian hieroglyphs, but like a very different cultural context. Yep. Please don't. Nope. Think not that we're not same, same. Thing. Absolutely not. Uh, so a glyph, incidentally, can mean a couple different things in the sense of its, its root word uh, from the Greek glyphen, which means... Uh, to hollow out, engrave, or carve, uh, which is also where we get the English word cleave. Isn't that fun? That is fun. I thought that was fun. Yep, it's fun. 
um, a glyph is a symbol carved into stone or other material. In typography, though, a glyph is another name for a character, a symbol that has a recognized meaning or sound. So a pictogram is a pictorial symbol that takes the place of a word or phrase. So a pictogram can be a glyph, but a glyph isn't always a pictogram. Yep. Um, this is giving me shades of when I try to explain how cuneiform works <laughs> like regularly. Well, yeah. I mean, um, it's, cause it's it, it could be, it could be a sound, it could be a concept or it can be the sound of the concept. So, <laughs> uh. great. so the Maya used their writing as decorative and sacred elements in their architecture, but they also wrote books. So a, a, a Mayan, a book in Mayan, the language, mm-hmm. is referred to as a codex. The plural there is codices. So the codices were painted onto a paper made of bark from the fi- from a fi- type of fig tree. Yeah, not just and the one fig out, tree. <laughs> yeah, and folded out like an accordion. So um, there were, oh, like, oh, you're thinking, cool, we're going to talk about Maya libraries. Yay! We're not. No. We're not going to do that. We can't. Because... Once the Spanish barged in to colonize them, zealous priests destroyed most of these codices. And like most, it feels like an understatement, yep. actually. Um, Nearly so they saw all. them as so they saw them as heretical objects uh, because they dealt, among other things, with Maya cosmology and rituals. Yeah, they were decidedly so we say not zealous, Catholic. Yeah. So we say here zealous priests, but it was really like one guy. Yep. In particular, um, this guy, Diego de Landa, who like really had it out for Maya texts um, and mm, torture, loved torturing people. Yeah. Um, loved torturing people so much he got in trouble for how he tortured people and then um, got sort of pardoned and then got a better job that allowed him to, he became like the like you know like the bishop of the yucatan wow. or something like Way to just fail like, upward oh at like, no, he was very good at torturing um, but in shame. addition to torturing uh in addition to torturing people in like wild ways i learned reading about he ordered the destruction of books so the number is dipu- disputed but he himself reported 27 books yep it, they were thinking that he understated the books um, and around 5,000 Maya cult images in 1562. So they were all burned on his orders. Um, and Delanda cataloged the Maya religion, the Maya language, and the Maya writing system. You know, all the things that the Maya talked about in the books yep. that he just kept those. ordered, destroyed. Um, but he wrote a book, Man Writes Book, Relacion de las Cosas de Yucatan. But in the work, he condemned all of these things as heretical. So it's like definitely more like biased. It's among the most biased sources you can find, but conveniently for him, it's also among the only sources you can find from the 16th century or before. Yep. So today, there are only four known examples of Maya codices. For a long time, people thought that there were three, and then the fourth seems like, yeah, maybe it is real. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get there. So. The four surviving Maya codices mostly contain information about Maya astronomy, astrology, religion, rituals, and gods. So all four of them were created after the peak of the Maya civilization. Uh, So sort of the peak of the classical period. Mm -hmm. So even as their civilization underwent colonization and decline, not collapse. Nope. Still there. Wasn't a collapse. It was not a collapse. Um, It was a colonization. Um, Some vestiges of their culture remain. So let me introduce you to 
all of the Mayan literature in existence. <laughs> It'll take eight minutes. It's, it's, so the most complete of the set of four is the Dresden Codex, because also um, they didn't call it that. Um, the Maya? No, they, no, they didn't. The, the codices have their names from the cities that now have them. Yep. Which is not sure. which is cool. Which is a super way cool way to to do that. Yep. So um, the Dresden Codex came to the Royal Library in Dresden in 1739 after being purchased from a private collector in Vienna. So it was before that. I guess it was known as the Guy's House in Vienna Codex. Must be. In, um, in so Wien. Cre- <laughs> yes. Wien House Codex in. Win. Um, so it was created by no fewer than eight different scribes. We know this because experts have stared at it for a very long time and figured out which pages have different drawing and writing styles. Uh, the Codex was likely created sometime between 1000 and 1200 CE during the post-classic Maya period. Its contents deal primarily with astronomy, days, calendars, good days for rituals, planting, prophecies, etc. There's also a part that deals with sickness and medicine, something I could use right now. Oh, buddy. There are... <laughs> <laughs> Mayan remedies for Tommy, Tommy troubles. For Tommy. Uh, there are also some astronomical charts plotting the movements of the sun and Venus. Mm-hmm. So up next on our tour of all four is the Paris Codex, uh, discovered in 1859 in a dusty corner as if there were another kind of corner of the Paris library. Yep. So, um, it's not a complete codex, but it's fragments of 11 double-sided pages. So it's believed to date from the late classic or post-classic era. So a little bit earlier than the Dresden Codex. Mm-hmm. Um, and the information preserved deals, sorry, the preserved information deals with Maya ceremonies, astronomy, including constellations, dates, historical information, and descriptions of Maya gods and spirits. Oh, I bet Delanda hated that. Yeah. Oh, the Madrid Codex. Guess where they found that? Oh, I know. Okay, great. Um, It used to be considered two separate books, uh, but it was actually a single text that was divided into two parts sometime after being taken by colonizers. So um, they put it back together in 1888. And (laughs) according to multiple sources, which are uh, rude, this particular volume is poorly drawn yeah multiple write-ups of the madrid codex were like this one's bad cool (laughs) cool glad that like four gives you enough to decide what is bad um but you know everyone's a critic everybody's a critic and the last of the four is the groliet codex which wasn't discovered until 1965 i don't know where groliet is maybe that that's why it hadn't been discovered because they're like, where? And only consists of 11 pages of what was probably a larger book. And the pages are in a pretty rough state. Um, there have been some questions about the authenticity of the piece of, of this piece of Mayan, of Maya writing in Mayan. Um, but it's generally agreed. It's generally agreed to be genuine by experts who know much more about this stuff than we do. I have an information. You have an information? Yes. It was first shown at an exhibition held at the Grolier Club in New York City. Oh. Yeah. So it's not even Grolier. It's just like I mean, I, Grolier. Gro- well, you can say Grolier <laughs> if you want to feel 
European, but I, it's New York cool. City. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Um, so the Maya Library, as we understand it, a very interesting collection. It's a shame that we don't have anything else. Thanks, Delanda, you utter bonehead. Yeah. I think we can pack up our books in our tote bag, yeah. go check them out, and uh, wrap up this episode for now. But we'll definitely be talking more about libraries in the future. Yeah, no need to slip the checkout cards into the pockets and deactivate the alarm and sneak them out of the library because we'll be coming back. A shout out to a very special friend of the show and also us who just had a birthday who I'll leave unnamed because we used to do that together. (laughs) Nerds. So... Happy birthday, fellow library criminal, uh, friend of the show. So wholesome. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back in your ears next week with more content, which you can find. More content. More content, which you can find <laughs> on Apple Podcasts, if you still like that app, Spotify, Stitcher, <laughs> anywhere else you get your pods. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. All of that, plus more, so much more, is available on our website, thedirtpod.com. You can get yourself some merch. You can sponsor an episode on a topic of your choice that we reserve yeah. the right to veto if if it's bad. Gosh. That's a way to... <laughs> um, also, um, listeners, if you want to spend more than $30 on Spreadshirt, there's a sale right now. Oh. Yeah. Time, time for me to get some of our merch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's not an us sale. It's a Spreadshirt sale. So. Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. We love you. Thanks for listening. I'm going to lay down. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.